Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hey friends, before we get to our guest for today, let me tell you about our sponsor. It is Podbean, the all-in-one podcast hosting and publishing provider. If you've ever thought of trying to get your message out, maybe you have teachings, maybe you have just a message that's on your heart that you got to share with the world, go to Podbean. They give you an easy and affordable way to do that. And now with their new mobile app, it gets even easier because you can record and post directly from your phone. How easy is that? Super easy. I've used podcasts for years myself. I've had great experience with them. And if you decide to use Podbean for your podcast, I'm sure you'll have a great experience too. So go check them out, podbean.com backslash newsworthy. Joining us from beautiful Omaha, Nebraska, Chris Hewitts. Welcome. Thanks so much, man. Great to, great to be in conversation with you. Yeah, uh, now, I heard a rumor that uh, we were supposed to be at the same place at the same time a few weeks ago. There was talk of it. Jason Miller was putting together what I like to call the Jason Palooza. And I heard a rumor that you might come to that and then you weren't able to. Man, was that the, uh, the, the meeting up in South Bend? Yes, or outside or wherever it was. Yeah, I was on 24 flights in 20 days. And that was um, right in the middle of it. And so yeah. uh, it would have been a trick to have pulled off. Yeah, I mean, that's a, like, I'll give you an excused absence for that, but it still would have been nice to meet you in for person. sure, yeah. Yeah, well, we, we, I think you were supposed to, Jason told me you are going to lead us in a spiritual practice. We replaced you with Aaron Nequist, and, like, I've, I feel like I'm still going to go to heaven, so I don't feel like uh, he did a bad job. But Actually, you get to go to heaven because of Aaron, so that makes congrats sense. on that, props. Yeah, for sure, and... But like, here's the thing, like, I don't even know how to say this, but like, you like interact with Mother Teresa. So I feel like you should kind of have like a direct in for everyone that you know. Like, is that how that works? Like, do you meet her and do you get like free coupons? And she says, here, pass this out to 19 people and they can get in too. Um, I, you know, I, I wonder what my uh, Mother Teresa dispensation is. I also did the Camino de Santiago and I did get the Compostela, which means I don't have to go to hell. Now, that still doesn't mean I get to go to heaven, but, you know, yeah. keep my fingers crossed. I mean, honestly, you're doing a lot to, like, keep your options looking pretty good for eternity. Doing my best, man. What do you think is more influential, like, doing the, the, the little trek there? The How is it, like, hundred, hundreds of miles? How far is that? We walked um, 800 kilometers, which is just about 500 miles. We started in France and, and went all the way to, to Santiago. Like, so the 500 miles or hanging out with Mother Teresa for like an extended period of time, which one helps you more with God? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> that's a good question. I, you know, the Camino changed my life. Like that, that, um, that's one of the great laments of our, our sort of tradition within um, evangelicalism is, is, is what we've lost in terms of the historical continuity of how we pray and you know yep. of course pilgrimage is one of the seven primary ways that that christians were were, were gifted with with practices um so that's you know to recover that was was really significant for my own faith journey but you know all that time i spent with mother um over the last few years of her life um also changed me more than than i i realized and especially when i was you know there in my mid-20s i i don't think i i, I could appreciate 
what she was offering and, and, and really the, the, uh, the gift of that it was to have, have, have spent, spent time with her. Where, where did you get this bug? You grew up in the evangelical church, right? What was the flavor of the church that you started with? Um, I, I was in sort of a, a decaf, charismatic, independent church. Okay. Um, went to um, an Assemblies of God high school, which was chaos. <laughs> and then um, went to Asbury in Kentucky, which was yeah. a real thick dose of uh, Wesleyan Arminian with um, some holiness tradition mixed in. And that was a bummer because you really can't legislate holiness and, and think that's <laughs> going to end well for anyone. So uh, That sounds about right. Well, then where did you get this bug to, to embrace the more mystical, uh, the, the older, the deeper traditions of outside of just the Protestant couple hundred year old world? Sure. So my, uh, my wife and I were part of an international humanitarian organization for about 20 years. And uh, we did our best. You know, we were, were working with... Uh, little kids and ladies who were, were trafficked into the commercial sex industry, little kids who had to fight in the Blood Diamonds conflict in Sierra Leone. We worked with um, youth who lived on the streets or in sewers, slums, and in refugee camps, and then um, did a lot of work with kids impacted by the global AIDS pandemic. And you can imagine that was, it was overwhelming. It, it took a lot out of us. And, and the, um, the impacts of that, of, of you know, if, if, I, if I'm honest here, taking or attempting to try to take better care of someone else than I was myself caught up to me. Yeah. And so we were, were fortunate to have really good spiritual directors um, who would introduce us to folks like Father Thomas Keating, who uh, began to teach us centering prayer, folks like Father Richard Rohr, who began to help us integrate the sort of rhythms of our contemplative practice into our active lives. And uh, I, I think it was just really the sort of um, roll the dice of, of whatever that sort of Christian luck is to have had such great, great guides and mentors. Yeah, the list of people that you've interacted with, just reading this book, uh, The Sacred Enneagram, Mother Teresa, uh, Richard Rohr, Thomas Keating, like that, not many people get to interact with those people. So I can see how that would uh, broaden your uh, Christian perspective, getting to interact with all those people and to, to see a much deeper part of Christianity than, than maybe the one that you just grew up in. Um, before I get to that, though, 20 years f- working in uh, almost unfathomable situations for someone like myself who's been in the States my entire life. It, um, a few weeks ago, I talked to uh, Jeremy Courtney. Uh, do you know him from Preemptive Love? Yep, Jeremy's a, a good friend. Okay, so the worst question I, one of the worst questions I've ever asked on the podcast is a question I asked to him where I just assumed that in all of his years that he kept his faith the entire time. And so I said, well, well, well kind of a cavalier question of what helped you keep the faith during such tough situations? And he goes, well, I didn't really keep it the whole time. And as you were saying, you were overwhelmed by the situations that were in front of you. It seemed like that would be the natural thing. Just when you're ripped out of, the American culture and kind of the bubble that you grew up in to see that it seems like maintaining sort of some of the simplistic understandings of faith that many of us have grown up with would almost be impossible to maintain. Well, they, they are. And, and, and they are because we, we have to, to confront what we mean by faith. Look, here's, here's the problem for, for most folks who've grown up in North America and especially if they're, they're in or have come out of a, a historic Christian faith tradition um, we, we've mistaken what we mean by faith and replace that with belief. So, yeah. you know, I like to say this when I was a little kid, I believed in Santa Claus because of, of three things, uh, adults I trusted told me Santa was real. My peer group fortified it 
and there was evidence. And I think a lot of people, even if they have what, what feels to be an authentic conversion experience, still um, sort of give themselves to their, 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 their sort of set of doctrinal uh, values because adults they trusted um, told them this was true. The peer group fortifies it and they can, can reach and point to evidence. But, you know, faith is actually making an option for the absurd. Faith is putting our hope in something unbelievable. Mm. And, uh, you know, when you see people, when I, when I, when I see my, my Christian and Hindu and Muslim friends sort of arguing over the, the, the validity or the accuracy or, or the truthfulness of their own sacred myths, it, it sounds like little kids fighting over the plausibility of which cartoon is more real. Um, there, there's no humility in that. So moving from belief to faith is devastating for people, but really that's one of the first and most gentle sort of welcomes into mystery. Hmm. Which opposite for the absurd? How would, for some, that, that phrase can be overwhelming. What do you mean by the absurd? Well, making an option for the absurd that, that actually God is, is, is better than we hope God to be. That God is not as hard on us as we are on ourselves. That that God wants to love us more than we want to be loved. I mean, these are all um, unrealistic hopes, and you know that's really what we're 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 putting our faith in is mm -hmm. is hope. It's it's something that we can't prove. There's sort of no polaroids of of heaven or hell. Like there's sort of no sound waves that we've been able to peel off any of the the, the ancient buildings in the Middle East to sort of hear the the actual voice of, of Jesus who becomes the Christ and so you know it's 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 really um it's it's a fragile it's a fragile scaffolding around beliefs if we if we don't reach for the absurd and don't put our hope in something that that could be as as beautiful as what we we, we imagine it to be hmm. and and even more beautiful actually so you you define faith as reaching for the absurd well I, I really do think it's making an option for the absurd. And I think, um, and I think what we, we put our faith in is, 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 is ridiculous. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's fabulous. It's, it's hope filled. It's, um, it's gotta be better than, 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 than even the best of what our imaginations could, could anticipate. Yeah. Right. I, so. I mean, quite literally the idea that God became a human being that's an absurd idea that there's a person who looks just like you and me, maybe darker skin and a different, uh, you know, accent, but looks like us. And that is actually God in the flesh. I think if you can't just be honest and say that is pretty absurd, uh, you're missing the nature of what faith is. So yeah, I, right, I, totally. I love that definition of it. Um, and, and so, okay. So you grew up, uh, in this evangelical charismatic assembly of God kind of world. You got introduced to a lot of these amazing people. You were overwhelmed in the circumstances, uh, of where you were in the book, you talk about something I, I think you mentioned just a second ago, but that you did more taking care of other people than you did taking care of yourself. And so you had this journey of trying to move past your false self to, to find your true self. And the Enneagram is right in the midst of that. Right. So, uh, so I did believe in the sort of projection of my own ego mythology, um, especially in that humanitarian work. Of course, that's um, one of the the temptations that I think sneaks up on a lot of us who are who are trying to do good in the world, and you see that you see that whenever you interact with with folks who have a, a sort of social justice bend to their own uh, vocational fidelity. It's it's like that's what they lead with. That's how they introduce themselves. Yep. They allow that fragment of their whole 
um, to sort of take over. And, um, and so that was, was, was part of my own sort of bumping around on the bottom of life. And uh, when it caught up to me, it really caught up to me in some pretty painful ways. It, it hurt um, myself uh, spiritually and, 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 and emotionally. It hurt my marriage. Uh, my wife suffered from it. And really my community, my community had to pay the price of, of me not, not being well either. Yep. And so, you know, that's when, um, when we hit those walls, when the beliefs don't work out. And that's, and that's what we used to say, that we were trying to bear witness to hope, that, that we were trying to sort of bear witness to the possibility that, that God is actually good in a world that has legitimate reasons to question God's goodness. Mm-hmm. But man, when it caught up to me, it, it, it caught up hard. And so those contemplative practices that, that Father Thomas Keating, that, that, that Father Richard Rohr had introduced us to, were, were lifesavers. I mean, it was, it was right on time. Hmm. And uh, and I would say the Enneagram as a companion, as as sort of a, a spotter to those practices, was was um, the the perfect rails to lay sort of a, a a new awakening or sort of a you know conversion isn't a one time event. It's yeah. a, it's a series of of small deaths, and it's it's a, a it's a series of consenting and then saying yes. And uh, you know the Enneagram and and and. Um, and the contemplative practices together in tandem really, really changed everything. Yeah, it's a series of deaths, which I, that's kind of a macabre way to look at it. But you, know, you have a quote in the book about contemplative practices are deaths. They prepare us for silence, stillness, and being alone. And I, or I think you, you, you referenced someone else who has that quote about it. But the idea of contemplative practices are little deaths. How... how for some of us who've never connected those two dots of contemplative practices and deaths, how, how do those go together? Well, so a good friend of mine, Drew Jackson, he uh, works at a church up on the East Coast. He accompanied his mother um, during the last days of her life. And as he um, saw her sort of make peace with dying, you know, he really gave this beautiful language that, that contemplative spirituality is practicing for death. And, and I think that's true. I think in our contemplative practices, these sort of non-conceptual, apophatic ways of praying without words, without symbols, or without images, it exposes a few things in us. Number one, it exposes that, that, that we don't trust God. And so we assert ourselves. We center ourselves. We feel that the sort of notion of our own liberation, salvation, or, or faith formation is really dependent on us, our efforts, and, and our right beliefs. And, and so to lay all that down is actually a major death to the ego because now we uh, have to realize that there truly is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. And even having right beliefs, which then sort of creates this really messy quagmire for folks who think that fidelity to doctrine is, is the sort of gate. But then secondly... Every practice that we, we give ourselves to that is marked by solitude, silence, and stillness is, is an invitation to letting go. And it's, and it's letting go um, to the things that tether and, and anchor us to sort of that, that projection of our ego mythology, that, that we are the originators and the perfectors of our own sort of uh, self-improvement programs that we think are going to get us to whatever we might believe heaven or paradi- paradise could, could be. Yep. Yeah, you, you have a line in there from Fran- St. Francis who says, it's in dying that we are born into eternal life. And yeah, and your, right. um, 
the letting go. I, I know Father Rohr talks about all spirituality is about letting go. And I, yeah, I, I think that's the, the wonderful trajectory. In, in the books, you talk about Nowen's three lies, like the three primal lies that we all struggle with, which come from Jesus' temptation. The I am what I have, I am what I do, and I am what other people say about me. And I think it's, would it be fair, I think you connected the dots to the I am what I do as a type eight that was your the lie that you got sucked into when you're doing so much you're making like this justice effort to to bring peace to so many people you you bought into live i am what i do and the enneagram became like the guide to rip apart that false self to find out who you actually were is that right right yeah the enneagram became really a, a sort of it, it's a map it's a, it's a sacred map to our souls and uh and it's not the journey right? It it just informs the journey. But what it showed me really was my over-identification with with the role that I had played, with with the position that I had held, and and with the work that I was doing in the world. And even allowing that fragment of myself to lay claim to the whole of who I thought I was kept me stuck and and kept me lost. And so, you know, when you you sort of look at the Enneagram, it, it shows you how to find your way home and it was um and it was compassionate it was was severe it was um was a a painful um invitation to start to tell myself the mm-hmm. truth you start the book with this great story um uh, about, i think it's a priest who's blind and a little girl says you know you don't even know what you look like and then she says you're beautiful and oh, that was a great i like a, a great picture of the enneagram i i think True healthy spirituality says you who you actually are, not what you have, not what you do, not what people think about you, but who you actually are. You are beautiful. You are loved. You are God's beloved. And um, yeah, I, I love what you're doing with that. In in the book, I think you describe like finding the Enneagram actually by Roar teaches you, you were, at, were you out in Albuquerque uh, after like a crisis of some sort? So I, I first learned the Enneagram in the slums of Cambodia back in, in, in around 2000, 2001 from uh, Craig Greenfield, who's um, doing incredible work there, still doing incredible work there. And uh, man, when he taught it to me, it was just, uh, it was a brain bender because, uh, you know, first of all, I felt exposed and, and then I didn't want to sort of be seen like that. And so um, I, I sort of fought back against it. I sort of resisted it. I, I, I took a few more tests and tried to test the tests and and I sent him this spreadsheet with all these sort of weighted results from all these different, mm-hmm. um, all these different tools to sort of bring type forward. And he was just like, "Man, you're you're doing it wrong." And um, so he he sort of helped me come to terms with the gift of my type. Now, you know, that's that was the the the, the first sort of like opening the door and sort of peeking peeking down the hall. Then folks started to, to, to buy me The Wisdom of the Enneagram, a, a book by one of my teachers, Russ Hudson, and, and the late Don Riso. And uh, as I was flipping through that book, man, I was just, to be honest, like super weirded out. You know, it was a little too interspiritual for me at that point yeah. in my life. And of course, when you see the Enneagram, it looks like two pentagrams having sex. And so I was like, <laughs> whoa, like super demonic. So I that's kept bringing that's the book way worse than and, I've ever saw it. So thank you for ruining that for me oh now. Man. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, right. But people kept buying me that book. I'd bring it back. Somebody else would buy it for me. I'd bring it back to the bookstore. Somebody else would buy it for me. So when it when it finally sort of set in, and when it sort of finally took, um, 
we used it a little bit in community. Um, we used it just like, like most people do. And I think in, in a really unfortunate, almost weaponized way of sort of reducing people to caricature and quirks, um, reducing people to sort of the, their, the, the shape of their tragic flaw and, and their sin tendency. But it wasn't really until I hit, hit one of my first major walls in life. And like you said, went down to see Father Richard in Albuquerque that, um, I understood this, this isn't really about the worst parts of me this is about the possibilities of what i can can become what we all can become if we give ourselves to 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 the truthful inner work of uh, sort of deconstructing our egos uh coping addictions that we've wrapped up around our, our childhood wounds around our our um our, our the, the cracks in our soul and uh and who we've who we've let ourselves become um in in some of the more untruthful yep. ways. I, w- my experience with the Enneagram, I think I found Roar's book on it and I was going out to Albuquerque to see him. Um, I, I've been out a couple times. I think it was like the second time I went out there and I, I just started talking with him about it and next thing you know, I got connected with um, with a type that I felt like was the right one. Uh, thought it was a three first, moved to a seven. Yeah, d- seven's definitely the right one. Uh, Suzanne Stabile's become a friend. Ian Cron's a friend. Uh, mm-hmm. Getting to know their work has been super helpful for me, and I, I found it to be super valuable. And I think, as you mentioned before, the worst use of it is to turn it into like this party trick where you can reduce people down to, oh, I know what your number is, therefore I know who you are, and because you know a few quirks that each type typically has um, that you think you know the totality of the person, which is clearly a misrepresentation of it. But um, so. It, I think by now, most of my listeners, they've heard Ian and Suzanne. Um, they've, they've maybe read Ian and Suzanne's book or they've read someone's book. And e- your book comes out. Um, and I think it's a different... Here's actually a metaphor. I've got a friend named Seth Abram, who's a big Enneagram fan. I don't know if you know Seth or not. Mm-hmm. Oh, you yeah, do? I love Seth. Okay. Yeah, well, love Seth. he said your book is like Enneagram... 301. It's not like your entry level course. It's it's a l- different level of engagement than what I think even like Ian and Suzanne what they were trying to do in the road back to you. I think theirs is more of an entry level, which I think would be a fair representation of their work and yours is was that in, am I picking up what you're putting down like is that what you're trying to do? Yeah, I know and I knew that that my book would be for some people their first introduction to mm-hmm. the Enneagram. And, and so I do try to offer some history, where yep. did this come from, some context. But um, I, I really did want to, to advance the conversation. I, I feel like there's a lot of material out there on what this is. And, and there's a lot of material that's essentially regurgitating and rehashing and reframing stuff that's, that's already been said and already been written. And if you know we're working with something that, that may only have 40 or 50 years and it's practical current application and form then then we're really just on the edge of 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 uncovering something that may be six thousand years old so you know this is what happens right in the um in the 50s oscar chazo this this bolivian wisdom teacher sort of goes into this seven day bender this sort of seven day hallucinogenic induced coma and an angel brings to him 108 what he calls enneagons and, 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 and what he did with those um, 
was he, he, he shared a few of those with, with some students at his Eureka school, one of those being Claudio Naranjo, one of the, the, the great grandfathers of the modern Enneagram. And, uh, and so what we're working with here is just a few of those 108. And what we're working here specifically is what is sometimes called the Enneagram of personality. But Gurdjieff, the man who, who really brought the symbol and, and some of the teaching for it 100 years ago, never taught this as a personality tool. He never taught this as a typing mm. system. So what, what I tried to do in my book was to take a step back from, from personality and, and, and really start to talk about essence and excavating essence. And, 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 I, and I also tried to suggest, I, I, I think, half a dozen or so sort of new theories or, or corrections to you know, that the passions actually aren't first and foremost sins, but in fact, that might be the best tool you have to get home, that your passion is actually your wake-up call of your thirsting to reconnect with your essence, and, and, and that disconnect is, is, is the great ache of our, of our human condition. I, I definitely think um, you, did, you, you brought things to the table that I personally haven't heard before, and, I, you know, I've... I, I re- helped Suzanne and Ian record like the first dozen podcasts on their Road Back to You podcast. So like I've I've heard this. Suzanne and, and Ian have done presentations at our church, and so I've I've heard them. I've read Roar's book, and there's still new stuff that that I'm still trying to process that I read from your book. So I definitely think y- you brought more stuff to the table. So people who read the Road Back to You or whatever, this isn't just regurgitating stuff that you already heard. And so let me talk about a few things that I'm still processing right now that I need you to help make sense to me. Okay. <clears throat> Uh, so, Let's all right. Um, <laughs> okay, the one, and this isn't just yours, but the the whole childhood wound is, it's one that seems problematic to me. And I, like, I think my childhood wound fits me. Like, yeah, that, that describes my childhood wound as a type seven. But I struggle to, I, I don't know why it is, but it seems like, I feel like that one's reaching too far. Like the idea that that can totally encompass what each individual person, say for example, me and my brother, different numbers, different types, but we had the same childhood. How can two people from the same family have different childhood wounds if they have the same family of origin? Right. Or how can, actually let's make it even more um, sticky or tricky and say, what if you and your, your, your brother were mm-hmm. twins um, and how did you, in the same and same access to opportunity and resource, end up to completely yeah. different people? Well, what I think that that points to is that really, in, in in one of one of the positions that I hold is that you're born somewhere on the circle on that rim of the enneagram, and wherever you're born on that circle, the the the, the type that you're closest to becomes your dominant type. Now, as, as a little kid, um, your dominant type is less about, really, personality because personality isn't essence. Your, your type is really about the gift that you were born to bring into the world. So if you're your dominant type 7, that is really um, sort of the unveiling of, of, of freedom. And, you know, unfortunately, like, folks will mess with 7s and say things like, well, 7s have a hard time following through with, with what they start. Actually, that's may be unfair because if freedom is, is part of your purpose for being, then to bring closure to anything limits freedom. And when freedom is limited, you part of you feels like yeah. you're dying, right? So here's what happens. If you're, if you're born to, 
to be a luminary pointing to freedom, embodying freedom, helping the rest of us experience what freedom can be, then, then somewhere in your, your childhood, and, and, and this is usually between ages two, three, four, or five, when you start to learn how to pretend, when you start to learn how to lie, when you start to sort of internalize your environment, you absorb the impression of your parent or parent's shadow. And, and look, our shadow isn't our false self. The shadow is where we, we park some of the things in our, our subconscious that we don't mm-hmm. want to deal with. Um, so a lot of that aren't the best parts of us. But as a little kid, you're absorbing that. You're absorbing the impression of your parent or parent's shadow. And you don't know what to do with it. Because when you're four, five, or six, you don't have the psychological framework to actu- accurately narrate what that is. And then not narrating that, it becomes sort of a confirmation bias of what you think you began to lose as you're sort of falling asleep out of your essence. So I think that's what they mean by childhood wound. It's not a wound. Nobody hurt you. Nobody did something to you. It was, hey, I was born to be a source of freedom. I started to realize as I got older that the world isn't fair, that the mm-hmm. world isn't free, that, that somebody actually has to pay for freedom. And, and to make sense of that and to make sense of being disconnected from that as you became more human, you sort of fell asleep and you used your sort of slumber, this sort of in-between conscious state as you became more and more sort of, you know, Christian people say like as, as your sinful nature was, was being sort of revealed, but I, I think that's unfortunate language as well. You use this. So-called childhood wound is a confirmation bias to prove to yourself that your disconnect from that essence is legitimate. You used a metaphor of Play-Doh being forced through like some sort of shape maker mm-hmm. thing. Um, so I've got kids. They, they make things. Slime is a big deal right now. I don't think you have kids, so you don't know the slime game like I do. But they like to make the slime fit in like these little cookie cutter kind mm-hmm. of things. And the slime already exists. They force it to fit into the mm-hmm. shape. Uh, is that kind of the childhood wound? Like there is being away from home, being disconnected, being asleep is going to present itself in some cases. And because of the type that you're born with, it, it takes on that shape for you? Is yeah, it takes saying? on nine, nine different shapes. There's nine different ways that we cope with that okay. disconnect from our essence, right? Okay, okay. You, I, you've, you warmed me up on this. Okay, I'm on board with so this. So look, when now. your little kids were born and you held them as, 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 as babies, it's like that's as perfect as a human is ever going to be. There's nothing wrong with them. Agreed. Like, in fact, Agreed. There, there's, there's nothing to condemn them, even in your own religious tradition. Now, somehow we have to sort of rub some Bible on it and, and put some sinful nature on these little kids. So when they cry, we're like, oh, there it is. They're selfish. When, in fact, actually they're crying because they're hungry or cold or want to be held. This is their self-preservation instincts coming forward. Mm -hmm. Well, as they grow up, they lose that innocence. We all lost that innocence. And it wasn't because we did something to lose it. It's just that is the the psycho-spiritual development of of receiving the flawed gift of our humanity. And so what we have to do to to cope with the loss of essence is is it, it, it becomes a thirsting to return to that. And, uh, and so, like I said, we, we put that on someone. We blame something. We internalize um, the shadow of our caregiver. And if, you know, you're dominant type 7, you, you internalize that in your head. 
Um, as an A, I internalize that in my body. My wife's dominant yeah. type two. She internalized that in her heart. And, and that's one of the ways we, we deal with our loss of essence. Yeah. Uh, did you come up with intelligence centers or did you uh, adapt that from someone else's work? No, the intelligence centers really are, are the basis of the entire Enneagram. And when Gurdjieff, the, the man who, who, who brought this forward 100 years ago, taught it, he, he really just taught it through the centers. Okay. And um, I th really think that's how you know somebody who's, who's pretty fluent here in the Enneagram because if, if they understand the centers, they, they really almost could, could never use type language and, and still really unveil what the Enneagram exposes. Yeah, that's one of the things that – so I've always heard it's head, heart, or gut. And to have the intelligence center language put on top of that to go, okay, these are the intelligence centers. It's not just head, heart, or gut. Um, Part of it is helpful. There's another part where there's a lot of language to an already very complicated idea that sometimes can make it seem overwhelming that, oh, I can't figure out all this stuff out. Um, and it, it can, I don't know, it can cause some people maybe to be discouraged because there's just so much to it. But I think that also speaks to the validity of it is that it's not easy to understand. It's very complex. There's a lot of stuff going on. But still, it's very, it can be very accessible um, to the novice. And I, I think that's just a, the reason why it's so popular these days. And so you talk about fixations, passions, intelligence centers, harmony centers, all this is very helpful. One of the things that I think is unique about what you're doing is connecting it to the spiritual practices based on the type and the intelligence center that we come from. And so, go ahead. Right, and, and that's really what I was, was also trying to do because it's, it, look, once you, you learn um, the Enneagram and, and it is sort of intuitive and you know once you sort of find your type and you sort of finally feel like there's some sort of framework to show you something that you may have always known about yourself but didn't have sort of a, a construct to put it in then at a certain point a lot of these books just become sort of a fuel for your own narcissism right so I, I also didn't want to write that book where it's like hey I could just turn to my chapter and read 27 pages and set this thing down but it's like, how do I understand myself in relationship to others? How do I understand that I'm not insulated and isolated from my shared hum humanity and my shared human experience? And, 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 and then, really, what do I do specifically to, to sort of work with my type for spiritual growth, right? So if we can move beyond type as mere caricature, if we can apply what we discover about ourselves for spiritual awakening, this is really some of the most urgent work the Enneagram invites us to consider. Now, yeah. we have to do that, of course, by resisting reductionism, by avoiding trite and unhelpful prescriptive steps for spiritual growth. And, and so what I also tried to do was, was really thoroughly interrogate what's been missing, I think, in a lot of contemporary Enneagram materials and, um, and so I did take the intelligence center, right? The, your primary mode for perceiving the world, either through your instincts in your body, your feelings in your heart, or, or your thoughts in your mind. And I align those with prayer postures, either solitude, silence, or stillness. So if I say stillness is the prayer posture for those of us in our bodies, you know, eights, nines, and ones, eights, nines, and ones can generally agree to that. I mean, you know, first of all, nines might be like, so cool, dude, because I'm already chilled out. That works for me. Um, stillness for eights and stillness for ones is going to take on a completely different experience. Yep. So that's why I took uh, the harmony triads or the dominant affective groups and said, 
well, you also need a mindfulness intention, right? And so that's consent for the twos, the fives, the eights. That's engagement, the threes, the six, and the nines. And that's rest for the, the ones, fours, and sevens. And when you take that consent, engage, rest, solitude, silence, and stillness, and you, and you wrap it around the Enneagram, you actually have nine unique combinations that I honestly think address the ache of the so-called childhood wound that actually help you unwind out of your addictive loops and tendencies and actually help you sort of come to terms with the gift of your type as a way of, 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 of being healed into wholeness. Hmm. That's good. So as a type seven, the practice that you would prescribe would be silence um, for sevens, sixes and fives, because we're always thinking. And so the the practice that we need to gravitate towards is that. One of the things that I've found is in the last five five years, I've gravitated towards silence just naturally. I, I've sensed that that is what I need the most. And I, I wonder if others, as they're making their journey home, to continue with your metaphor, do you think many people naturally align themselves into practices that would fit in your prescription? Have you noticed that? Have you, have you sensed that from other people already? Right. So, so I would, I would, I would maybe um, clarify the nuance. And and first of all, I'd say that you know for the for the head types, right? That it's not the practice of silence, but it's the posture of how you hold your prayer pack practices. So, mm-hmm. so whatever your prayer practices are, my 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 um, encouragement in the in the book there is for those in the head, you bring silence as the posture. Well, what do you hold in your posture, right? So for the fives, it's consenting to silence. It's saying yes to turning off the noise that drives them to sort of suss out and interrogate every question. For the sixes, mm-hmm. it's engaging silence rather than being fearful to go there and, and for the sevens it's actually resting in silence now when i say for the for folks who are dominant type seven the the resting in silence is 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 the sort of path for you that resting in silence really is 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 how you approach any of your 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 practices because yeah. you know as a frustrated idealist frustrated with your your nurturing caregiver um idealistic about your your ideas of freedom um, you're worn out from chasing that. And and that, you know, as you can imagine, and, and probably some of your relationships wears the others out. So for you to rest in silence means you get to turn down the noise of what's next. And it actually allows you to rest in the present. And for a seven to sort of experience themselves in the present is a form of rest. So what does that look like for you if you have a centering prayer practice, then then, then that dominant posture of, of silence um, holds you in that practice as that practice becomes a way for you of, of resting in God. But for me, right, as the dominant yeah. type A, I'm, I'm going to suggest that I have to consent to stillness, that I have to actually agree to stop fighting for justice, stop mm-hmm. sort of getting out there and, and trying to, to sort of champion, let's say, the underdog or... Yeah, or or do what it is that I think I'm I'm supposed to do. Yeah, my wife is a type one, and you know, for her, it's uh, I can stop perfecting everything. I can stop reforming everything, mm. and it's. But I love the concept. Like I'm I'm surprised almost that no one has connected the dots on this yet. And so when I first heard about this book, I thought that's a 
That, that's one of those ideas. How come it hasn't been out already? Right. Maybe I'm missing it, but it's it's just a brilliant uh, connecting the dots. That I, so I, I love I love what you're doing. I love the idea. I love the concept. I think it's going to be um, super super helpful to many of us who are who've taken the enneagram. We've gotten used to. We figured out type. We're we're, inter, we're introduced to it, and now we need to figure out what are the next steps to it. Because I think. Like you're saying before, it can be the the guide rail. It can be a map that can help you in your journey to find your true self. And I, so, anyway, I just love what you're doing. I love the idea of the book, and um, yeah, it's well done on that. Appreciate it, man. And and I'll say this when I when I suggested solitude, silence, or stillness for for the intelligence centers, I I, I really do think everybody was just like, of course, that totally makes sense. In fact, that actually for a lot of people has helped them sort of come back to their to their to their prayer lives, to their their contemplative practices, with a little bit more of that tightened focus. Now, I will say these mindfulness intentions, consent, engagement, and rest, um, are a little bit more hidden from us. And yeah. um, so, I, I did a lot of work to to really try to to make sure that what I was suggesting for those dominant affect groups or those harmony tribes was was actually on point. And I, I think why it's hidden from us is um is part of our own need to sort of wake up. Like I, I think that the solitude, silence and stillness, these postures, we can find our breath. We can re- return to the present. We can actually sort of prepare ourselves to do the inner work. But I think these mindfulness intentions are hidden from us because we're required to actually sort of get inside and see what it is that we truly need. And, and I'm going to say this. I, I think a lot of people have very unsatisfying prayer lives because we're asking for the wrong things because we don't know what we need and if we keep asking for the wrong things we're never going to get what we want and that's why we we say stuck so how, how do we know when how do we know what to ask for if we constantly are asking for the wrong thing how, how do we correct that well I, I i mean this is part of this this practice of dying it's 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 actually letting go of even our own desires our own sort of wishes it's 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 consenting it's engaging it's it's resting in a posture and and i think in these postures what we start to find is is a real union with with divine love a a real ability to commune with our notion of god and i think when we do that um you know god is 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 loving and god gifts us sort of that that recognition of what it is that 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 we're so desperately longing for but because we've we've fallen asleep because we're 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 blind to ourselves because we're not telling ourselves the truth we're we're incapable we're incapable of recognizing it yeah Uh, that's good well uh the book the sacred enneagram is good people go get a copy of this christopher thank you for writing this man appreciate it great great talking with you about it All right, friends, that podcast was brought to you by our friends at Podbean, the all-in-one podcast hosting and publishing provider. To get your message out, go to Podbean. And now with their new mobile app, it is even easier than ever before. So if you want to do what I did, get a message out, get a podcast out, go to podbean.com. They'll take care of you. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. We'll see you back here next time.